My name is Steven Sindoni. Thank you for tuning in to watch Legends of Mount Shasta. In today's program, I will feature 11 videos surrounding the mystique of California's most majestic mountain, Mount Shasta. Our first story is entitled, Mount Shasta, Legend or Fact? In today's program, we will examine the evidence regarding strange occurrences surrounding the Mount Shasta area. According to legend, Mount Shasta is one of the seven sacred mountains of our planet. The legend of the mountain includes stories about angels, spirit guides, UFOs, extraterrestrials, and great masters. Lemurians allegedly live in the underground city of Telos. The city has been said to serve as an interplanetary and interdimensional portal. Telos has also been referred to as the crystal city of light of the seven rays. Hopi legends say that this mountain is one of the 13 homes of the lizard people reptoids. Native American tribes of California claim that Mount Shasta is the inner mountain dwelling place of an invisible race of men. Still more accounts describe the mountain as an inlet to the ancient Lemurian world and that the Lemurian survivors still live today in the tunnels of dead volcanoes. The fascinating stories that surrounded Mount Shasta led me to my own research regarding the 1904 legend of J.C. Brown that spins the tale about an explorer working for a British mining company who claimed to have discovered a cave entrance that led 11 miles under Mount Shasta where he found a village with streets, mummified giants, and hieroglyphics of an ancient Lemurian civilization. Then in 1934, Abraham Mansfield said he encountered a tribe of Lemurians who had dug tunnels connecting Mount Shasta and the Bluff Creek area. October 24, 1955, it was reported that longtime resident W.A. Barr, his wife, and their housekeeper observed a brilliant light on the mountain about 8 o'clock in the evening. They said that the light seemed to revolve in small circles. Barr was quoted as saying, it had every color and glittered like a diamond. It was about the same time that J.O. McKinney, better known as Mac, around the Mount Shasta area, and a one-time feature writer for numerous newspaper magazines, claimed that he had seen something very exciting and strange while working as a night watchman at the McLeod River Lumber Company. Making his rounds one night, he had gone up into the watchtower overlooking the McLeod yards. All four walls of the tower were glass. McKinney said eight or ten lights came swooping toward the tower in formation very rapidly with no sound at all. They were white and brilliant and looked as though they were flying 300 to 400 feet above the ground. In the late 1960s, a Mount Shasta police officer who, for obvious reasons, also wants to be nameless, said in an interview with reporter Garth Sanders of the Reading Record Searchlight, that he had seen two of the things. The first time was in the fall of 1963 while patrolling with his partner near Mount Eddy. Then a few years later, the same officer patrolling alone north of the city of Mount Shasta said he had encountered another craft that was 40 feet in diameter and saucer-shaped. Then in 1972, a man from San Jose while hiking came across what he described as a reptilian humanoid. Other visitors to the mountain have reported seeing various subhuman cultures, including dwarfs, Bigfoot, or Yeti-type creatures, and giants dressed in white robes. 
On August 16, 1987, thousands came together as part of an international harmonic convergence designed to bring world peace. All the faithful who gathered on that day believed that the mountain was one of the seven major planetary chakras of spiritual awareness. Then on September 6, 2009, while talking with a friend named Atara Reyes at 11 p.m. in the evening in the city of Mount Shasta, we both witnessed a fleet of ships flying directly overhead in a southeasterly direction heading away from Mount Shasta. Is it any wonder why they call Mount Shasta the Magic Mountain? Thank you for tuning into the broadcast of Mount Shasta, Legend or Fact. Located just west of Interstate 5, between the towns of Costella and Dunsmuir, Castle Craigs is today a popular tourist resort along the highway. It is situated along an ancient trade route and travel route known as the Siskiyou Trail. Castle Craigs is a dramatic and well-known feature in Northern California. The mountains of Northern California consist largely of rocks of volcanic and sedimentary origin dating back as far as the Jurassic period. Heavy glaciation at this location during the Pleistocene eroded much of the softer surrounding rock leaving the towering crags and spires exposed from which the Castle Craig's Pluton derived its name. Exfoliation of huge convex slabs of granite yielded rounded forms such as the prominent Castle Dome features of Castle Craig's. Elevations range from 2,000 feet along the Sacramento River near the base of the crags to over 6,500 feet at the summit of the tallest crag. Castle Craigs has witnessed dramatic events. Strained relationships between 1850s California gold rush miners and the local native Indian populations resulted in the 1855 Battle of Castle Craigs in which the poet Joaquin Miller was wounded and which he later described in an essay of the same name. Exploitation of the land by lumber and mining operations encouraged concerned citizens in 1933 to acquire much of the land which would eventually become Castle Craig's State Park. In an area where mystery is omnipresent, here is yet another perplexing and unsolved puzzle of the ages, the Castle Craig's petroglyphs discovered several decades ago by two Dunsmuir High School students and the late Frank Bascom. This story can be found in Emily Frank's book, Mount Shasta, California's Mystic Mountain. The story is entitled, The Baffling Castle Craig's Petroglyphs. Flowing through the lower slopes of Castle Craig's is Little Castle Creek, and it was in this area that the high school boys were hiking one sunny day. Tarrying a while besides a huge cleft boulder, one of them casually brushed aside some loose material and was startled to find the impression of a human hand on the boulder, a man's hand. The imprint had been chiseled into the granite and filled with a red cement-like solution used apparently for the purpose of keeping any growth of vegetation from covering the symbol. Excitedly, the boys hunted for more carvings and nearby found two more symbols, serpentine in form. 
Then, on the opposite side of the border, they found another hand, smaller and more delicately molded, which obviously represented a female hand. Hurrying home to relate their mysterious find, they returned shortly with Frank Bascom, who was associated with the United States Forest Service and also dabbled in archaeology and geology. The boys led the way up Castle Creek Canyon, on up the Mount Bradley Road, then hiked along the banks of Castle Creek. Finally, the threesome reached the Graven Rock. More searching revealed in a willow clump a second set of carvings, which included two Maltese cross designs, one created in a zigzag line decorated with dots, and the other composed of two E-like characters. Intrigued, Bascom immediately reported the discovery to the Shasta National Forest officials and the third trip was made to the site. More carvings were found nearby. On a rock upstream, which measured about eight feet in height, were found a male and female hand and more petroglyphs. The palm of the male hand bore an engraving similar to a capital E, and the female hand bore a curious double triangle symbol. On the opposite side of the boulder, they found the likeness of a bovine head. Bascom, certain that they had made an important discovery, returned to the area accompanied by George Schrader and other personnel from the U.S. Forest Service. This group investigated the fastening petroglyphs. Bascom then wrote an article about the Castle Creek experiences in which he stated, The facts stand out that the petroglyphs or symbols chiseled in the coarse granite rocks up Castle Creek show greater skill and symmetry and a higher degree of culture than any found elsewhere in different places of southwestern United States. The petroglyphs have been colored a reddish hue with some unknown liquid solution and it was evidently used to keep any growth of vegetation from covering the symbols. The people who did this work were no doubt artists possessing great skill. On what is now two large boulders, there was at some remote time one huge rock which at some time was cleft asunder. The symbols are on the east side of these two rocks. Those on the rock to the south reveal a large man's hand painted with some unknown stain. In the palm of the hand is chiseled the all-seeing eye and on the rock to the north is a beautifully shaped woman's hand in whose palm is chiseled a form of the swastika, which is thought to be a very ancient symbol of the four rivers of life or eternity. The swastika symbol is pre-Christian in origin and was found in the ruins of the lost continent of Lemuria Mu, as well as in India, China, and Tibet. On the heels of these remarkable petroglyph discoveries came various interpretations. Letters were exchanged with the Department of Anthropology at the University of California. Communications came from authorities at Stanford University and from the Academy Press in New Jersey came a letter to Frank Bascom from Alvin Boyd Kuhn stating that he thought the symbols had been chiseled into the boulders by local Indians. Bascom replied, This I doubt. In talking with the highest type of the older local Indians, they state that this work was not chiseled by Indians. Bascom added, Churchill in his Lost Continent of Mew lists six of the symbols found at Castle Craig's, the swastika, 
a form of the Maltese cross, the triangle, the all-seeing eye, the serpent, and the three steps to the throne. He found these symbols engraved on clay tablets in the temples of India as they existed in the sunken continent of Mu, and I consider them authentic. And so, the controversy continued. Considering the age of Castle Craig's, local persons, including Bascom, insisted that these mystic symbols were carved into the granite rock in a prehistoric era, and these theories are supported by those who believe that Mount Shasta area, indeed, part of the last remaining portion of the vast continent of Lemuria, which sank into the Pacific Ocean together with most of its ancient, advanced, and highly skilled civilization. The Castle Craig's petroglyphs still remain a mystery. Who carved the delicate, intricate symbols into the hard granite boulders, and when and why will probably always be just another mystery in the area where mysteries abound. Thank you for listening to Legends of Mount Shasta Revealed, The Castle Craig's In our broadcast today, we will discuss the lost continent of the Pacific in a book written by Wizar S. Survey. The famous story of the Lemurians inhabiting Mount Shasta is known all over the world, and it is said that the entire western coast of the United States is supposedly the remains of the continent of Lemuria. Even disbelievers cannot dispute the fact that the mountainous terrain on the west coast is indeed different. The cataclysmic action that caused the submersion of Lemuria is said to have also caused the now continent of North America to rise from its partially submerged state, join with the mountainous remnant of Lemuria, and thus form the continent which was later named North America. In 1931, a fascinating book entitled Lemuria, The Lost Continent of the Pacific was published and written by Wizar S. Survey. He said he was a student of archaeology, geology, and meteorology, and that he spent 10 years in research. He also had at his disposal many ancient manuscripts and maps. Deciding to gather information, the thousands of recorded facts, and the vast collection from all over the world of reports, legends, and findings regarding Lemuria, he put them into book form because he believed that all the races of man throughout the world as we know it, had one common origin, the Lemurians. And that the environment and climate changed their nature, habits, and appearance. Survey emphatically believed that Mount Shasta was the last refuge of the survivors of the lost continent of Lemuria. The book was very widely read, and shortly after it was published, searches for the Lemurian colony inside Mount Shasta came from all over the world. Letters of inquiry poured into the offices of the local United States Forest Service, and all were officially answered. What's more, Forest Service personnel claimed that they had searched the entire mountain and the surrounding flats, and that the mountain was photographed from the air. After a while, the United States Forest Service dutifully reported that no one had ever encountered a Lemurian. Nevertheless, many still believe that the author presented his facts in such a way that it did seem reasonable that part of California was once the eastern coast of Lemuria. According to survey, 200,000 years ago the surface of the earth was much different than it is today. 
North America, Europe, Africa, South America, and Asia were joined, and much of this land was either submerged beneath water or it was a form of swampland and uninhabitable. And as long ago as 150,000 years, he states these particular submerged lands were known and described and sometimes pictured on crude and ancient maps. Prehistoric people, he wrote, lived on the continent of Lemuria, also called Mu. This extremely ancient continent was supposedly the cradle of the human race, and on it was the Garden of Eden. Surveys states that in all ancient records and among all ancient tribes, there is a trace of this same story of the creation of man in a Garden of Eden, and the earliest records indicate that man was created coincident with the creation of other living creatures and that he is not a descendant of any lower species of the animal kingdom. Many thousands of years later, according to survey, a series of magnetic waves began to move around the Earth's circuit from east to west, and this affected the then civilization to such an extent that the Lemurians kept records of the changes. According to this amazing book, the part of the continent of Lemuria that was connected with Asia and Africa began to sink, leaving parts of Lemuria submerged. The same magnetic waves, according to the author, affected the continent or what is now Europe, and it rose higher. The continents which were destined to become North America and South America began to shift away and separate. As the continent of what is now North America moved westward, it joined with the eastern mountainous coast of Lemuria, and later on, when Lemuria was almost fully submerged, this high eastern terrain of Lemuria, which included Mount Shasta, joined the western portion of what now constitutes Western North America. This would include the states of Washington, Oregon, all of California, a small part of Nevada, and parts of Arizona and Mexico. Far-fetched? Wizar's survey didn't think so. He further theorized that the Lemurians, knowing that the bulk of their vast continent was sinking, moved to parts of what is now Asia, Australia, South America, and of course the area that still remained of their own continent. He claims that the pure-blooded Lemurians existing today have chosen to remain in an area with climate as near like that of Lemuria as possible, which accounts for their presence in Mount Shasta. Quoting survey, perhaps the most interesting explanations of what was to be found in this locality is that it was not only the ancient seat of hundreds of Lemurians who lived there and manufactured and grew all of the principal necessities and kept themselves isolated, as did the other group of Lemurians who lived at Santa Barbara many years ago, but that their village itself was only partially on the outside of Mount Shasta, and that there is a tunnel through its eastern base leading to a great enclosure on which there is a city of strange homes, and that the heat and smoke seen arising from the crater of Mount Shasta was smoke and heat from the interior village. According to Survey's beliefs, the great cataclysm of 15,000 years ago which caused the western portion of the flourishing continent of Atlantis to sink also caused the submersion and destruction of almost all of the civilizations as it was known in that part of the world. And then, 12,000 years ago, in another terrible upheaval, 
the remainder of Atlantis sank. Lemuria was devastated and her great civilization submerged and lost. All that was left were her colonies throughout the world. Survey describes Lemurians as tall, graceful, with long flowing hair, clad in long white robes and sandals. After Survey's book came out, the worldwide interest incurred by Survey's book never subsided. Visitors to the area surrounding Mount Shasta still ask many questions about the mountain and the Lemurians. In our broadcast today, we will discuss the Golden Goddess of the Lemurians in a book written by Abraham Mansfield with excerpts from Emily A. Frank's book, Mount Shasta, California's Mystic Mountain. Abraham Mansfield believed that Lemurian gold mines exist deep within Mount Shasta and wrote several books about mines and other phenomena. Abraham claimed that he was the appointed chief of the gods of the Lemurians. The year was 1931. Mansfield tells of the experiences of his friend, not named in his book for personal reasons, who had lost his way on the northeast side of Mount Shasta while following a wounded deer. He finally found the dead buck, but he had become completely lost and had wandered around until he was exhausted. Quoting from Mansfield's book, about 3.30 a.m. he heard something saying, Why don't you come with me? My friend looked up, and to his surprise there stood a being seven feet tall who said, I am a Lemurian. What are you doing here? Mansfield then divulges the experiences of his friend, who was taken voluntarily to a palace and gardens beneath Mount Shasta. His friend and the Lemurian kept going down, 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 and finally the Lemurian said, We are here in the shaft of gold, and is only a little further to my cave, which is lined with gold. You can sleep on my slab of gold. You will not need blankets because the slab was heated chemically thousands of years ago and never loses its constant heat. It is similar to the sun. The golden pillow was placed under the man's head and he was told, Think of what time you would prefer to awaken and you will, as the pillow is a mental thought pillow, radiated so you will become acquainted with mental seance, like the other Lemurians of the living dead beings. The man was also told, according to Mansfield, that there were a series of tunnels and shafts or flues left by the volcanoes which were connected together under the earth like highways, like a world within a world, and the shaft went several hundred miles in any direction. As for the brightness in that underworld, he was told that the walls were painted with a liquid sunshine and were as bright in all the caverns as though the sun itself were shining through. One shaft, he was told, led to the ocean and was near the wilds of Del Norte County, 90 miles to the west, near a monastery that was built to train religious Lemurians, and that this shaft lined with gold was accessible from the outside. I saw, the man told Mansfield later, plates and gold-lined shafts and tables and chairs unbelievably monstrous in size. Then I asked the Lemurian about the beings. 
he said they had gone to the center of the earth, to a far better world than that which existed near the surface in the volcanic caverns, and that he would take me there if I wished. The bewildered man, however, decided to return to the surface, mostly to see if he were indeed still alive. The Lemurian agreed to take him back, explaining that he could not be taken to the surface until he was decongested, explaining that otherwise he would die upon entering the surface when confronting the outside air. After thinking it over, the man decided to stay and see a few more sights before returning. He told Mansfield later, I wanted to see the Lemurian treasure vaults and things from the long-ago Etrusian and Lemurian civilizations. The Lemurians said that the crown jewels and gold were there, but there was nothing about their way of life as they never kept scientific records at the mines. The gold was taken out for all nations of the world and they built temples with gold on the islands of Etrusia and Lemuria. The Lemurian, according to Mansfield book, told the man that he grew carrots two feet long and two feet through and all other vegetables and fruits the same. He showed the crown jewels of the Lemurian and Etrusian civilizations of thousands of years ago and said the Lemurian and the Etrusian treasures are still there the way they were left after the Ice Age. Quoting Mansfield from his book, Before the Ice Age, the ocean was five miles from what is now Mount Shasta. Finally, after seeing other wonders, the man asked to be returned to the surface. I told Lemurian, he told Mansfield later, that I'd like to return to see if I was still actually alive and find my car and my friend who had been hunting with me when I got lost. I explained that he must be worried by now as I had my car keys in my pocket and it was a long walk home for him. Thereupon, he was decongested and returned safely to the surface. He told Mansfield after they were reunited, on the outside they left me on my own again and completely disappeared into the depths of the mountain. I wandered around looking for the road and my car. Finally I said to myself, you fool, get down off this mountain and start over. Go up the old emigrant road that you were on and find your car where you and Mansfield left it yesterday or whatever day it was. He found his car in Mansfield, who said he had nearly frozen to death the night before. As they left the mountain, they compared notes, discovering that they had both had former eerie experiences, and Mansfield revealed that he was acquainted with the shafts of gold and the plates of time from happenings in his own life. His friend said to him, You speak of the shaft lined with gold, the plates of time, and the Yukian of God's sciences. I saw the Yukian on the walls of the caves I slept in, and as the place of time state, it is time to tell the world, and you were the one chosen for the mission. Mansfield explains that the plates of time were assembled thousands of years ago. The Ice Age was coming on, which meant total destruction. The rulers of that ancient civilization were highly educated and had highly civilized sciences including atomic power. They tried to combat the ice flows by melting them. They blew deep holes in the earth. The more melting, the more water, earthquakes, and volcanic action. Their civilization was destroyed by the use of atomic power. 
The plates of time were assembled for future generations to preserve the knowledge that they had about atomic power so that a new generation would use it wisely and respect the powers of God in any and all things from beginning to end of all worlds and time. I like to end by saying if we do not learn from the past, we will be doomed to repeat it. Thank you for tuning in to the broadcast of the Golden Goddess of the Lemurians. In our broadcast today, we will discuss the mystique of the Magic Mountain, written by Billy Harshberger in Eureka's Humboldt Standard newspaper in May of 1936. With excerpts read from author Emily A. Frank's book entitled Mount Shasta, California's Mystic Mountain. There is a mystique about Mount Shasta, rising ethereally white above the green Sacramento Valley, a mystique that stirs the spirit and the imagination of humans far and near. A California writer named Billy Harshberger wrote in Eureka's Humboldt Standard in May 1936. Somewhere in the hidden reaches of western mountains, so the story goes, a strange race of people lives, works and plays, a race of Lemurians who came to these shores from the lost continent of the Pacific. An old fanciful tale, you say? Well, that's not the half of it, for these have been stories about these Lemurians from credible witnesses who insist the Lemurians have the power of invisibility. Weird lights that flash from Mount Shasta and queer, undecipherable hieroglyphics chiseled in solid rock lend credence to the belief that this race exists. Scientists have puzzled over the possibility that a great continent once reared itself in mid-Pacific islands. Could not the inhabitants have escaped to our shores? I sought out old seamen, and they said it was so. I sought out all records, logs, and rare writings, and they agree. From the lips of weather-beaten men with eyes trained on far horizons, I heard of ancient cultured lands submerged by catastrophe. Harshberger goes on to say that historians have reported the fact that in California there is evidence to show that people, presumably Lemurians, have lived and taken refuge in the center of an extinct volcano, hidden from all possibly worldly observations, and that it is possible that these people of Mount Shasta are still living. This may explain the invisible city. Referring to the lost continent, Harshberger stated there were hundreds of records, geological and historical, to prove that islands have been disappearing and reappearing, sinking and rising in the Pacific since the No World has been recording such happenings. At Ponape in the Caroline Islands, 2,300 miles from Japan, is a deserted city known as Metallonim, the ruins of which covers 11 square miles. There are massive walls and great temples which are intersected by miles of artificial waterways. Sailors call it the Venice of the Pacific, and Professor Macmillan Brown, an authority on such matters, believes that this could have been built by tens of thousands of laborers, yet now the place is not large enough to accommodate 20,000 on all the islands within a radius of 150 miles. There are not 50,000 people living today. What happened to all the others? 
Harshberger ends the piece by stating, Scientists believe that there was once a continent which formerly filled a large part of the world's most extensive maritime basin, the Pacific Ocean. The former home of early Lemurians, I'd say, the last of whom lived quietly and pray in Mount Shasta. Earlier that same year, in January, John B. Scott wrote a piece for the Rosicrucian magazine in which he told of his trip to investigate Mount Shasta, saying that the first thing he wished to find out about were the weird lights that had been seen by travelers and even by astronomers in distant observatories. It appears, he observed, that there is actually a basis for the stories concerning the lights. This is not coupled with the Lemurians, however. Scott met a person who had spent 15 years on and around Mount Shasta. He explained there were unusual mineral deposits and peculiar physical formations which produced these uncanny effects. Not only that, but combined with certain air currents, even ghostly sounds are produced, and this is not, he said, something incident to Mount Shasta alone. He gave the example of the traveler on the Rhine listening to the echoes of a pistol shot or two which multiply into machine gun firing because of the physical formation at a certain point on the river. He added that there have been and always will be strange lights at certain times on Mount Shasta, though they would not be seen as much in the future as they had been in the past for good reasons. The government had been doing much work and the nature of this work would, to a certain extent, reduce the phenomena since the latter is concerned with purely physical or mostly physical conditions. The reason, he said, mostly was because he felt the average reader does not consider the ethers as being physical since he cannot see them and knows nothing of them. Scott therefore attributed the strange lights on Mount Shasta to be a combination of moonlight, snow, trees, ether, phosphorus, and other minerals and water. And after exploring the so-called strange sounds on the mountain and the other phenomena, Scott came to the conclusion that there are no Lemurians on or in the mountain. Then, surprisingly, he wrote that he believed that ancient people still live on Mount Shasta and that their dwellings or temples are located in inaccessible points on the mountain. He believed that they could be contacted under the right conditions by the right persons, but these ancients are not on the physical plane nor are their temples. He concluded by stating he and others thought that many earthbound spirits from an old civilization which once existed on the mountain are still there, held closely bound to the earth for centuries by their materialistic natures. Mount Shasta, he said, seemed to be a sensitive spot, meaning it is easier to contact those in other planes than in most other places. Many seeking inspiration or new experiences, as well as students of occultism, visit the mountain during all seasons of the year. Mount Shasta is listed among the seven mountains of mystery. The others are Mount Ararat in the Caucasus, Mount Whitney in the Sierra, the Grand Teton in Wyoming, Mount Maru in the Andes, Mount Reuben Gary in Africa, Mount Everest in the Himalayas, and Mount Montserrat in Spain. In a very old Overland Monthly in 1908, there appeared a piece dealing with a fragment of the ancient continent of Lemuria, which stated California was a center of a civilization that antedates the continent of Atlantis by thousands of years. 
And in Tokyo, Japan, an article released by the Sun in 1961 suggested that the continent of Lemuria, Mu, might rise again. A group of Japanese claimed that Mu was the cradle of civilization, and it included Christianity, the Maya civilization, and the Incas of Peru. They stated that the continent was as large as North and South America combined, and that the natives had advanced navigational techniques which enabled them to visit colonies in Egypt, India, Tibet, Japan, and other far-flung places. In a 1933 issue of the Kansas City Times, a report was published about a British anthropologist who claimed he had very definite information plus maps and photographs regarding a mysterious lost continent buried beneath the waters of the Pacific Ocean. Was there indeed such a continent? Consider Madagascar, located in the Indian Ocean and one of the largest islands in the world. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Madagascar was probably joined to Africa, possibly in Triassic times, thus forming part of the Gondwana continent. But the splitting off is very ancient and bordering islands such as the seashells allow the conclusion that the island belonged to a continent called by geologists Lemuria, which stretched as far as India, the sinking of which brought about the disappearance of this continent and gave rise to violent volcanic eruptions. Many believe the Lemurian colonization program extended to other ancient traces of civilizations found in the world today, such as Easter Island and Stonehenge. These prehistoric stone monuments have never been adequately explained. And could the Lemurians be responsible for the recently discovered lost cities of the Amazon, ancient cities of white stone hidden for centuries in dense emerald jungles, cities which predated the Incas? Thank you for tuning into the broadcast of the Mystique of the Magic Mountain. In our broadcast today, we will discuss Queen Etrusiana from an Abraham Mansfield book entitled The Golden Goddess of the Lemurians, with excerpts from Emily A. Frank's book entitled Mount Shasta, California's Mystic Mountain. The late Abraham Mansfield had a story to tell. He believed that Lemurians flourished in the Mount Shasta area and he wrote a book in which he revealed the secrets of the Lemurian gold mines and also the circumstances which led to his unorthodox appointment and coronation as chief of the gods of the Lemurians, an honor which enabled him to view what he called the plates of time which deal with mathematical equations and dimensions of secret solar control of atomic energy. Abraham Mansfield also claimed that he was in possession having received one-sixth of Queen Etrusiana's jewels. Who was Queen Etrusiana? And how does it fit into this story? I will explain it to you as Abraham Mansfield himself, the author of the book, explained it to Emily A. Frank. Emily Frank was writing for the Dunsmere News, a small weekly newspaper in extreme northern California when his book, The Golden Goddess of Lemurians, came out in 1970 and he sent her a copy of it. Along with the book, Abraham Mansfield sent enough strange material on Mount Shasta to fill four large manila envelopes. 
Some of the material was confusing to Emily A. Frank, but Abraham Mansfield swore it was all true. Mansfield said the plates of time are the treasured and ancient sciences of God from the very beginning and relate to a people deceased thousands of years ago. They dwelled on a chain of islands which sank into the oceans which we know now as the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. They were islands which included Etrusia, Lemuria, Atlantis, and Oceanus. According to Mansfield, these prehistoric civilizations had far greater knowledge than we do of atom power, ESP, electronics, and science, and could pick up messages that were recorded in time and space from back civilizations to the beginning of time. He said that Etrusian Lemurian story and the place of time had been around for thousands of years and his theory was as follows. Down the dim corridors of the ages, the world was different than it is now, and many islands flourished, which have since sank to the bottom of the oceans. Among them were the above-mentioned islands, and they were ruled by Queen Etrusiana, as was the entire world as it was known then through a Ten Nations Council. Her husband, the king, was interested in other things. He was a great scientist and spent much of his time viewing foreign planets building pyramids, and great towers. It appears, however, that the king was sterile. Queen Etrusiana wanted sons to rule the world, so she took the ten kings of the Ten Nations Council, one at a time, and produced six sons and one daughter. Thus, endowed with future kings, she and her sons would continue to rule the world. Queen Etrusiana's plan was interrupted, however, when the Ice Age started. Mansfield claims in his book that the world tipped from north to south, throwing the south pole of the equator on the opposite side of the earth. In the chain of events, he wrote, all the ocean's currents were forced to flow northward. Quoting Mansfield, it was like a giant trowel around the center of the earth with a rim on both sides and the middle. Knowing of the impending disaster, Queen Etrusiana and her king ordered 10 million Etrusians and Mongols to build reed boats with a light wooden structure. These boats were designed to hold 10,000 people and enough food to last until they could get to the top of the ice flow and recede with it. Then, when the expected second tip of the world came, all that could boarded the boats and headed north. According to Mansfield, North was safest because the safest place at the time of the Ice Age was at the top of the ice flow. Some took refuge on the highest parts of what is now South America, at one time Etrusia, and then some took refuge on any high land which protruded above the water. At the time of the disaster, Queen Etrusiana decreed that her six son kings would be kings forever in heredity, even from the world beyond. The survivors of the Ice Age diligently kept records of the descendants of these sons through mental seances in order to find the rightful heirs to rule as the chief of the gods of Lemurians, a reign, said Mansfield, that changes every 30 years, even now. Also decreed was that the Inca nation was to train their chiefs, find the rightful king in heredity, and entrust to them the scientific knowledge of the place of time 
so as to keep the knowledge on the plates forever alive, or to quote Mansfield, until our present civilization should become as enlightened in sciences as were those who lived before them. The manner in which Abraham Joseph Mansfield became chief of the gods of Lemurians was, as he said, through mental seances. And so it was in a bizarre chain of events that Mansfield became chief of the gods of Lemurians in 1934 in a ceremony performed at sunrise in the wilds of Del Norte County at the throne which was situated east of the Lemurian Monastery under the cliffs at the heads of Bluff and Blue Creeks near Cinder Cone Peak. In that ceremony, Mansfield claims the honor entitled him to one-sixth of Queen Etrusiana's jewels and also ownership to a most valuable Lemurian gold mine within the deep recesses of Mount Shasta, a shaft in which gold hung like icicles. This privilege, he said, was handed down to him through heredity from the ancient and enlightened Etrusian, Lemurian, and Atlantean civilizations. His reign ended in 1964 after 30 years and he decided to write about it. What's more, Mansfield claimed he had Queen Etrusiana's jewels to prove it. Mansfield had a bracelet with Etrusiana engraved inside of it. The ornate bracelet is designed with 10 major crowns and 26 lesser crowns which represented the large and small nations of the world as it was when she reigned. He said Queen Etrusiana wore this bracelet at all the meetings of the Ten Nation Council which were held on the island of Etrusia. Also in Mansfield's possession was royal platinum serving wear embossed with angels plus the Queen's coronation bracelet, a pendant, other jewelry, and an actual faded likeness of prehistoric Queen Etrusiana. Since Abraham Mansfield's passing, other stories have appeared unexpectedly which seems to corroborate his story. J.C. Brown, alias J.B. Body of the Legend of J.C. Brown, also believed that he had found the mummified remains of Queen Etrusiana under Mount Shasta. Ancient history is waiting patiently to be revealed. Thank you for tuning into the broadcast of Who Was Queen Etrusiana? In our broadcast today, we will discuss founder of the Radiant School, Nola Van Valor. The information was acquired through an interview with Emily A. Frank and Norma Van Valor. It can be found in Emily A. Frank's book entitled Mount Shasta's California's Mystic Mountain. Nola Van Valor admitted Emily A. Frank into her living room and after they exchanged pleasantries was invited to sit down. Nola Van Valor sat beside Emily Frank in her wheelchair, an attractive, white-haired, bright, blue-eyed lady in her 80s. In spite of the fact that she had broken her hip and wasn't feeling well, Emily Frank had the feeling that there was a powerful personality with a mental force as clear as it had been when Van Valor had admittedly met Philos the Tibetan and other ascended masters on the McLeod side of Mount Shasta during the 1930s. It is believed by many that there are converging rays of cosmic power on Mount Shasta which make it easier for humans to contact beings they call ascended masters 
and it was to this mountain that Van Ballard came in 1930, totally unprepared for the unexpected events which were to follow. She said she came with her husband and friends to camp on Mount Shasta at Widow Springs. They lived in San Jose where he was a mechanic and where she attended meetings of the Christian Science Church and also practiced healing. It was during the Depression, so they brought along a tent, some cooking utensils, and found a lovely place to camp besides the meandering stream. One day, she said, a strange man appeared before them. He was dressed in a long robe. He looked pure, and he explained that he had been watching them and had many things he wanted to tell them. As there were no tape recorders at that time, she said she took everything they were told in shorthand. Her time on the mountain began in 1930 and continued every year for 10 years. Sometimes she and others stayed a month or longer. Because of what she learned and other happenings at Mount Shasta, Van Bala later founded the Radiant School of the Seekers and Servers, using her experiences to form the lessons for her school. Van Bala believed she had found a working truth. Not knowing what the future held, she and others moved to the city of Mount Shasta and in 1963 established a school. They created and sponsored the Friendly Letter Service, which reached into 34 countries throughout the world. The material covered including powers, elements, forces, energies, magnetism, and also interpretations by Philos of Tibetan concerning spiritual beings, spirit beings, holy spirits, ethereal realms, astral realms, and terrestrial realms. The group, she said, wished to teach Christian philosophy in a clear, truthful, and straightforward manner. The following is an interview conducted with Nola Van Valor in the winter of 1973, which she later signed for release. Why did Philos, the Tibetan, and others appear to some and not to others, Emily Frank asked. The opportunity is at hand, Nola replied. It is intended for you to see. You will see whether you believe it or not. We just happen to be in the right place at the right time. But why do you suppose it happens to some and not to others, Emily Frank persisted. Because some are more suitable for it and perhaps have earned it through their different lives. Some people seem to receive that do not earn it, but they have to have earned it in some way or another or they would not receive. But why do you think the Ascended Masters chose to come to this particular mountain during the 1930s? Because this was the season, she replied, and Mount Shasta is a magnetic mountain, so much so that some planes cannot fly over it. Are you still in contact with any of the Ascended Masters you met in the 1930s? Nola smiled. Oh, absolutely. Have you seen St. Germain, who reportedly appeared to Guy Ballard on the mountain during the same time? Oh, yes, I've seen St. Germain. Mr. Ballard was up on the mountain the same time we were, and what he received, I will verify. To your knowledge, Emily Frank asked, were there any other people who saw the Ascended Masters during that time? Oh, yes, there were many other people. I don't know all of them, but they didn't do anything about it. No, I didn't either for a while. I was afraid of what the world would think. Van Valor then explained that she came to Mount Shasta every year for 10 years until the beings no longer appeared on the mountain. 
During these times, she visited a temple inside a cavern, which she said was visible from the highway. She and others visited the temple for 10 years. Inside was Philos the Tibetan, who she said taught the Bible as it was originally written. There were other ascended masters in the temple. Is the cavern and temple still there? Emily Frank asked. As far as I know, she said, I haven't been able to go up on the mountain for years. Was Philos there every time you were there? Oh, absolutely. Does that mean he's always there? No, she replied, he isn't. Then where is he when he isn't inside Mount Shasta? I would say in the heavenly realms. She shook her head slightly and then said, I wouldn't know otherwise. Emily Frank hoped she wasn't tiring Nola Ramballa, but she continued her interrogation. The temple you refer to inside the mountain is reputed to be one of the 18 sacred temples in the world where Philos appeared. Is that true? As far as I know, and not only Philos, many masters were there. In the late 1960s, Garth Sanders of the Reading Record Searchlight interviewed Van Haler, and she told him about climbing with friends up the east side of the mountain to the 12,451-foot level. She said the area was on the right bank side of Mud Creek. While they were resting, they noticed a very large black rock formation about 40 feet away where they sat. And while they were looking at this large rock, because it was unusual, it began to open as if it was on a pivot. She said they noticed a door leading to a large chamber inside the rock and that it was much like a cavern. They were invited in by a being. The cavern was about 60 feet long and 40 feet wide and down through its center there was a large table which could seat many people. The table appeared to be marble, mostly white, with pink and gold threaded through it. She said the six members of her party were seated at a table and were instructed by a being in a white robe. That being, it turned out, was Philos the Tibetan. He told the group there were 17 other temples in other parts of the world, and then he explained that his people taught the truth as it was written in the Bible. So intent were they, Van Vela told Sanders, they did not immediately notice that all around the wall in that large room were standing many other white-robed beings. The walls of the chamber appeared to be made of gold, and there was soft music. Van Valor went on to explain that she didn't tell of her experiences for a long time because she was afraid curious people would be hurt trying to visit the hazardous slope of Mount Shasta. All of her experiences, she said, had been on the McLeod side of the mountain and the experiences were sacred to her. As for the reported lights on the mountain, even before there were roads, the only explanation she could offer is that the lights came from the auras of the various masters. Nola Van Valor passed on some years ago. The Radiant School of the Seekers and Servers continued for a few years, but it no longer exists except in the minds of the former students. Nola Van Valor claimed that a great change will take place by the year 2000. It is my belief that in order for this great change to take place, we must open up our hearts and put down our weapons so that we all may live in peace and harmony. Thank you for tuning into the broadcast of who was Nola Van Valor?
In our broadcast today, we will discuss a race of little men on Mount Shasta. The story is from a 1953 issue of the Siskiyou Pioneer, written by the late Alex J. Roseboro, with excerpts taken from author Emily A. Frank's book entitled, Mount Shasta, California's Mystic Mountain. The tiny men began to sing, seeming to blend their voices in a chorus of beautiful cosmic sounds, all the while working with tiny anvils and hammers. Mount Shasta will always bask in the aura of occult legends. And those who have viewed the mountain have said that there are no rivals to match her beauty, grace, and symmetry. It is certain, too, that Mount Shasta has no other rival to match her mysteries. The following is a story which has been around a long time, from the 1953 issue of the Siskiyou Pioneer, published by the Siskiyou County Historical Society, comes a poignant tale written by the late Alex J. Roseboro, one of Siskiyou County's most distinguished citizens. As usual, his story is strange and flavored with mystery. Out of the tangle of stories told by Lika the Great White Mountain and the still clinging beliefs by many that a race of little men dwelt around its slopes prior to the coming of the Indians and that along its miles and miles of lava-borne sides filled with cracks and caverns, some still survive. Let's pick out this one in keeping with Christmas gladness and joy. Not far from the base of Olika was a home where a little child, racked with the pain of infantile paralysis, lay restless and sobbing, the bones of her left shoulder being gradually twisted into deformity by the dreaded and seemingly uncheckable disease. Everything the good old doctor could suggest, and all the kind and loving treatment by her parents, availed not. Tomorrow will be Christmas. The doctor had promised to come again and to see her on that day, and Uncle Ray had already arrived to be with his folks and to see his little niece bringing with him something wrapped in a mink skin which he seemed to care about very much. Uncle Ray was a big and powerfully built man. He was a trapper and spent much of his time among the Indians bartering for pelts and running his trap lines in winter on snowshoes. These lines took him across the great slopes of Mount Shasta to the heads of the Sacramento and McLeod Rivers to Butte and Antelope Creeks and into Shasta Valley. He lived much with the Indians, learned their talk, listened to their stories. One day, to a large gathering of the tribe, who came from far and near to celebrate the opening of their fishing season, came a very old Indian in whom Uncle Ray became very interested because he seemed to be familiar with early times long before the white man came. In listening to the old chief telling of his experiences in boyhood days, one story in particular impressed Uncle Ray. It related to the old Indian having run across a very small footprint high up on Mount Shasta. The chief called the mountain Lika while tracking a panther. The small and apparently human track led him across a wide pumice slope, and then the footprint was lost in the rocks below a high cliff of lava flow. Many times on his trap trail, the trapper pondered over the incident related by the white-haired Indian. While never at once doubting the veracity of the chief's statement, he nevertheless was semi-convinced that there might have been some mistake about the track. 
Always alert as to the description and location of the lava rock cliff as indicated and marked on the sand by his Indian friend, he found at last a mass of rocks which had in times long past run out as molten lava. The trapper managed by a circular climb to reach the top of the cliff where he almost stepped into a deep hole into the rock. The hole was barely large enough to admit a man's body. Lighting a couple of small pitch sticks which he always carried in his pocket to start a fire, Uncle Ray began to explore a big dry cavern room. Christmas Eve had come and it neared the midnight hour. Uncle Ray went to his pack of rare furs and picked out something wrapped in a mink skin and then laid a small beautifully made stone doll on the arm of the pain-racked suffering child. Then he withdrew from the room. As the big old grandfather clock gonged its 12 o'clock, Mama, Papa, Uncle Ray, and the doctor peeked in through the half-open door to wish the little crippled girl a Merry Christmas. But Mama hushed them with a warning finger for the child was sitting up in bed with her little stone doll clasping her good arm and with what had been her helpless arm raised high she smiled at them through grateful tears and softly sang, Glory to God on high in peace on earth to men of goodwill. And even to this day, the legends of the little men on Mount Shasta are still being told on Christmas Eve. Thank you for tuning into the broadcast of A Race of Little Men on Mount Shasta. In our broadcast today, we will discuss Dr. Doriel's theory from his book entitled Mysteries of Mount Shasta. With excerpts from Emily A. Frank's book entitled Mount Shasta's California Mystic Mountain from a chapter entitled Atlanteans in Mount Shasta. The Shining Peak rises in solitary splendor 14,162 feet into Northern California's blue sky. Incredibly, still another booklet came to light in which the author, Dr. M. Doriel, contradicts the legends that the mountain is inhabited by Lemurians. He states in a publication entitled Mysteries of Mount Shasta, which was published by the Brotherhood of the White Temple, Sedalia, Colorado, that the survivors of Atlantis inhabit the mountain. Dr. Doriel's theory goes along with the belief that Northern California is one of the most ancient lands in the world. But he claims that before the sinking of Lemuria and Atlantis, there already existed an Atlantean colony in Northern California, and that when Atlantis and Lemuria finally submerged, the survivors of Atlantis fled to the mountains, forming a colony inside Mount Shasta, where they live today. Although they have gradually decreased in number, Dr. Dorio claimed that there were 353 at the time of his visit to the Atlantean colony in 1931. As for the Lemurians, Dr. Doriel contends they built their civilizations in the South Pacific, the remains of which can be seen in the Caroline Islands. Their temples were placed atop the mountains which existed at that time, and the great basalt walls of the ancient structures still stand. These Lemurians reportedly built vast subterranean pleasure cities beneath the mountains and they also attained a scientific and intellectual mastership beyond any modern achievements, harnessing nature's forces and utilizing the energies from the sun 
and the moon. Using this mastery freely, they were able to heat and light their subterranean cities. They also knew the secret of the atom. According to Dr. Doriel, however, the Atlanteans and the Lemurians engaged in a great war, after which the Lemurian royalty, priests, kings, and noblemen withdrew in defeat to their underground pleasure palaces where they remain today in captivity. After their retreat, the Atlantean victors sealed the entrance and established an elaborate guard system which prohibits the Lemurians to ever escape their bondage. The Atlanteans, Dr. Doriel states, still reside in their colony beneath Mount Shasta and commute every three months by strange, cigar-shaped airships to that area in the South Pacific in order to check the sealed entrance of the imprisoned Lemurians, which believers say accounts for the appearances of spaceships in the Mount Shasta area. An interesting part of the booklet deals with Dr. Doriel's visit by invitation to the Atlantean city many miles beneath Mount Shasta. He explains in detail how the invitation came by and how he was transported from Topanga Canyon in Southern California to a place two-thirds up the side of Mount Shasta to a building fashioned from rose-colored stone. From this place he and his companions were transported to the very top of the mountain. Walking over to the center of enormous flat rock spanning five acres they sank rapidly into the interior of the mountain through what seemed to be a sliding shaft of rock. After a five-mile descent, they reached a huge cavern situated between great pillars of unusual white metal which, he was told, only existed in ancient Atlantis. Again descending into the depths of Mount Shasta seven more miles, they were brought to an enormous underground space extending 20 miles long and over 10,000 feet high. The entire area was brightly illuminated and the source seemed to emanate from a centered mass of glowing light. Dr. Doriel described the light as having unusual qualities which made his body tingle. It was said to be a concentrated blend of the sun and moon's rays. He was told that from three powerhouses hidden on the mountain, the Atlanteans periodically drew from the energies of the sun, moon, and cosmic rays. These rays are directed into the mountain to form the great glowing mass of energy which they use in numerous ways. According to the booklet, he was then taken to a small city about a mile and a half from the elevator which had borne him underground. This city, he wrote, was incredibly beautiful with breathtaking white houses built of marble and other stone, architecturally so splendid that the most magnificent temples of ancient Greece were rough characters by comparison. The entire subterranean area was landscaped with lovely parks, gardens, and trees. Fruit trees bore fruit unlike any grown today. Dr. Doriel said they had preserved the plants, vegetables, and even some of the animals which had flourished on Atlantis thousands of years ago. Furthermore, they controlled different energies which caused the plants to grow perfectly and periodically condensed moisture when it was needed. Eating, it was explained to Dr. Doriel, was indulged in strictly for pleasure. They actually had no need for food because the same energy which supplied the light also supplied them with, in every vital breath they drew, 
the energy for existence. After they had shown how they could make from common earth any stone or metal they needed, and after it had been explained that they live approximately 150 years and then pass of their own free will transition, and finally after exhibiting their amazing artistry in the design and weaving of clothing, the Atlanteans then escorted Dr. Doriel to the largest building, their temple. Their temple was primarily a temple of learning, according to Doriel. Occasionally, he was told, the Atlanteans bring in from the outer world certain chosen ones for instructions, and this temple beneath Mount Shasta is one of the two places on the North American continent that is used by the Great White Lodge, and it is one of the places where their work is directed to the outside world. Dr. Doriel concludes his booklet with the belief that these Atlantean survivors are masters of all the laws of nature and that they work continuously together with chosen ones in the outside world in order to gradually awaken mankind to the awareness of the great mysteries behind matter and substance, indeed behind life itself. And so it is ever thus with this bewitching mountain which seems to beckon not only the ancients but also earthly humanitarians wishing to create a better universe. Thank you for tuning into the broadcast of Atlanteans in Mount Shasta. In our broadcast today, we will discuss Unveiled Mysteries, published by the St. Germain Press in 1934. The book contains the author Godfrey Ray King, also known as Guy Ballard's Revelations, which began on the slopes of Mount Shasta. These experiences describe the late Guy Ballard's spirituality, enlightened introduction into the Brotherhood of Mount Shasta, a branch of the Great White Lodge. These excerpts are from an Emily A. Frank book entitled Mount Shasta, California's Mystic Mountain. The following is Guy Ballard's most unusual experience exactly as he wrote it. Mount Shasta stood out boldly against the western sky surrounded at its base by a growth of pine and fir trees that made it look like a jewel of diamond shining whiteness held in a filigree setting of green. Its snow-covered peak glistened and changed color from moment to moment as the shadows lengthened in the sun's descent toward the horizon. Rumors said there was a group of men, divine men in fact, called the Brotherhood of Mount Shasta, who formed a branch of the Great White Lodge and that this focus from very ancient times had continued unbroken to the present day. I had been sent on government business to a little town situated at the foot of the mountain, and while thus engaged, occupied my leisure time trying to unravel this rumor concerning the Brotherhood. I knew, through travels in the Far East, that most rumors, myths, and legends have, somewhere in their origin, a deep underlying truth that usually remains unrecognized by all but those who are real students of life. I fell in love with Shasta, and each morning almost involuntarily saluted the spirit of the mountain and the members of the order. I sensed something very unusual about the entire locality, and, in the light of the experiences that followed, I do not wonder that some of them cast their shadow before. Long hikes on the trail had become my habit whenever I wanted to think things out and be alone and make decisions of serious import. Here, 
on the great giant of nature, I found recreation, inspiration, and peace that soothed my soul and invigorated mind and body. I had planned such a hike for pleasure as I thought to spend some time deep in the heart of the mountain when the following experience changed my life so completely that I could almost believe I was on another planet but for my return to the usual routine in which I had been engaged for months. The morning in question I started out at daybreak deciding to follow where fancy led and in a vague sort of way asked God to direct my path. By noon I had climbed high up on the side of the mountain where the view to the south was beautiful as a dream. As the day advanced it grew very warm and I stopped frequently to rest and to enjoy to the full the remarkable stretch of country around the McLeod River valley and town. It came time for lunch and I sought a mountain spring for clear cold water. Cup in hand I bent down to fill it when an electrical current passed through my body from head to foot. I looked around and directly behind me stood a young man who at first glance seemed to be someone on a hike like myself. I looked more closely and realized immediately that he was no ordinary person. As this first thought passed through my mind, he smiled and addressed me, saying, My brother, if you hand me your cup, I will give you a more refreshing drink than spring water. I obeyed, and instantly the cup was filled with a creamy liquid. Handing it back to me, he said, Drink it. I did so, and must have looked astonished. The taste was delicious, but the electrical vivifying effect in my mind and body made me gasp with surprise. I did not see him put anything into the cup, and I wondered how it happened. That which you drank, he explained, comes directly from the universal supply, pure and vivifying as life itself. In fact, it is life, omnipresent life, for it exists everywhere about us. It is a subject to our conscious control and direction, willing obedient when we love enough, because all the universe obeys the behest of love. Whatsoever I desire manifests itself when I command in love. I held out the cup, and that which I desired for you appeared. See, I have but to hold out my hand, and if I wish to use gold, gold is here. Instantly, there lay in his palm a disc about the size of a $10 gold piece. Again, he continued, I see within you a certain inner understanding of the great law, but you are not outwardly aware of it enough to produce that which you desired direct from the omnipresent universal supply. You have desired to see something of this kind so intensely, so honestly, and so determinedly, it could not longer be withheld from you. If your desire had not been free from selfishness and the fascination of phenomena, such an experience could not have come to you. When leaving home this morning, you thought you were coming on a hike, that is, so far as the outer activity of your mind was concerned. In the deeper, larger sense, you were really following the urge of your inner God-Self that led to the person, place, and condition wherein your intense desire could be fulfilled. The truth of life is, you cannot desire that which is not possible of manifestation somewhere in the universe. The more intense the feeling within the desire, the more quickly it will be attained, 
However, if one be foolish enough to desire something that will injure another of God's children or any other part of his creation, then that person will pay the penalty in discord and failure somewhere in his own life's experience. It is very important to realize fully that God's intent for every one of his children is abundance of every good and perfect thing. He created perfection and endowed his children with exactly the same power. They can create and maintain perfection also and express God dominion over the earth and all that is therein. Mankind was originally created in the image and likeness of God. The only reason all do not manifest dominion is because they do not use their divine authority, that which each individual is endowed and by which he is intended to govern his world. Thus, they are not obeying the law of love by pouring out peace and blessings to all creation. Love and praise are the great self within and the attention maintained focused upon truth, health, freedom, peace, supply, or any other thing that you may desire for right use, persistently held in your subconscious thought and feeling will bring them into your use and world as surely as there is a great law of magnetic attraction in the universe. The eternal law of life is what you think and feel you bring into form. Where your thought is there, you are. For you are your consciousness and what you meditate upon, you become. As I contemplated the wonderful privilege and blessing that had come to me, I heard a twig crack and I looked around expecting to see him. Imagine my surprise when not 50 feet away I saw a panther slowly approaching. Then came the thought that one part of God could not harm another part. I was conscious of this fact only. A feeling of love swept over me and went out like a ray of light directly to the panther and with it went my fear. I reached down and stroked his soft head. I suddenly looked up. St. Germain stood beside me. St. Germain then said, My son, I saw the great strength within you, or I would not have permitted so great a test. You have conquered fear. My congratulations. Thank you for tuning into the broadcast of Unveiled Mysteries. In our broadcast today, we will discuss UFOs, fact or fiction. The excerpts are from Emily A. Frank's book entitled, Mount Shasta, California's Mystic Mountain. Mount Shasta, glistening superstar of all mountains, has always been synonymous with mystery. Its snowy peaks and ridges seem to join the very rim of heaven, and it has always been whispered that those who seek shall find not only the mysteries of the ages, but also the future within Shasta's snowy glades. Is it any wonder that these sightings of unidentified objects have been reported on its slopes and within its realm? Consider the village of Happy Camp, for instance, one of the smallest settlements around the base of the mountain. Surrounded by precipitous, heavy-timbered mountains, it lies deep in the rugged Klamath River Canyon. Happy Camp, named by California's early gold miners. Today, descendants of those miners and the Karuk Indians continue to live there. 
The area is extremely remote. Oddly enough, spaceships have been sighted there and residents claim they have been abducted. When sightings actually occur in the small hamlets surrounding Mount Shasta, often they are not reported. Or if they are, the persons reporting a sighting often retract everything they say for fear of public ridicule or for fear of losing their jobs to say nothing of the annoying telephone calls. It has always been rumored that Mount Shasta is a fueling station for spacecraft and that they hide in the strange lenticular clouds which frequently form a perfect halo over the mountain. It has been Dr. Doriel's theory that the Alanians, after engaging in a victorious war with the Lemurians, imprisoned the hapless Lemurians beneath the Caroline Islands in the Pacific and sealed the entrance, establishing an elaborate guard system which prohibits the Lemurians to ever escape their bondage. And according to Doriel, the Atlanteans who still live in a secret city miles beneath the mountain still commute by spaceship every three months to that area in the South Pacific. And so there are those who believe that some of the spaceships gliding locally on magnetic currents on moonlit nights are Atlanteans and they live inside Mount Shasta. Whether or not the general public accepts the reality of spacecraft, the overwhelming fact is they have been sighted too often in the Mount Shasta area to discount the reality that they exist. As long ago as October 24, 1955, it was reported that longtime resident W.A. Barr, his wife, and their housekeeper observed a brilliant light on the mountain about 8 o'clock in the evening. They said the light seemed to revolve in small circles. Barr was quoted as saying, it had every color and glittered like a diamond. It was about that same time, the late J.O. McKinney, also known as Mac around the Mount Shasta area and one-time feature writer for numerous newspapers and magazines, told Emily Frank in an interview that he had seen something exciting and strange while working as a night watchman at the McLeod River Lumber Company. Making his rounds one night, he had gone up to the watchtower overlooking the McLeod lumber yards. All four walls of the tower were glass. McKinney said eight or ten lights came swooping toward the tower in formation very rapidly with no sound at all. They were white and brilliant and looked as though they were flying 300 to 400 feet above the ground. When his view was cut off by the roof, McKinney rushed over to the other side of the tower, but they never reappeared. A woman who lives in the suburbs of the city of Mount Shasta, a friend of Emily A. Franks, who wishes to remain anonymous, noticed a strange plum-shaped cloud one day about 14 years ago. Directly under the cloud was a disc-shaped spaceship, which she said had beautiful, iridescent color lights and seemed to be hovering about 400 feet above the valley floor. She got into her car and drove closer, finally stopping in at the Pine Grove Grocery nearby to tell Curly Herbert, who was the proprietor then. After taking a look, Herbert thought at first it was a plane, but decided a plane could not hover in one spot so long as this object was doing. Then it vanished. In the late 1960s, a Mount Shasta police officer, who for obvious reasons also wishes to be nameless, said in an interview with reporter Garth Sanders of the Reading Records searchlight that he had seen two of the things. 
The first time was in the fall of 1963. He and another officer were patrolling during the night in the police car. They noticed lights against the dark bulk of 9,700 feet Mount Eddy in the west. At first they thought the lights came from a jeep or one of the many logging roads there, but when they put their field glasses on the object they saw a disc or covered saucer and it had a row of lights along its side. As usual, it was one of the area's beautiful moon splash nights. The officer estimated the length of the disc at 30 to 50 feet and said his ring of lights shifted from brilliant green to red to silver. Then in a burst of speed, it whisked away over Mount Eddy, which is situated across a valley from Mount Shasta. The men notified the United States Air Force and was subsequently mailed stacks of detailed questionnaires. When they finally filled them out, the Air Force decided that the two police officers had been mistaken about what they had seen. A few years later, the same officer was alone in the patrol car just north of the city of Mount Shasta. Again, there was moonlight. He knew there was something hovering overhead and very close. He leaned forward and looked upward through the patrol car's sloping windshield. He said the spaceship was about 40 feet in diameter, saucer-shaped, and was equipped with a pair of curved skids or pipes on its underside. The craft gave off a brilliant blue light. He radioed the dispatcher at the police station and asked him to go out into the street and see if he could sight the object. The dispatcher did so and immediately returned to the office to report that he had indeed seen a big blue light. He returned outside to witness the craft hovering for a while, then abruptly it zipped to the area above the St. Germain Foundation Amphitheater on Upper McLeod Avenue in the city of Mount Shasta. Again it hovered, drifting slightly, then it skimmed eastward and disappeared over one of the highest ridges of Mount Shasta. These are just a few of the credible UFO sightings over Mount Shasta. Thank you for tuning into the broadcast of UFOs fact or fiction. Is it any wonder why they call Mount Shasta California's greatest mystery? I'd like to thank everyone for watching Legends of Mount Shasta.